someone reading it to you while you read actually is very helpful. And we're reading in big chunks, okay? If you're falling behind, can I just encourage you, um, don't stop. Just jump ahead to what we're up to. You'll find it on the reading plan. We're starting week four this week. Just jump ahead and, and do what we're doing so that we know, you know what we're preaching on and so you can be part of the small groups that are part of it and then you can go back and catch up later if you want. I just want to encourage you to keep going, church. Just keep going. This is good. This is important. It's better than all the other distractions that you can fill your time with. It is better than Netflix. It is. It's more life-changing. Look, for some reason lately, I've been known to this guy on YouTube that clears block drains. I don't even know why I watch it. <laughs> but immerse, the Bible is better than that. It clears other block drains. I just thought of that just then. That was pretty good. Listen, there's bits that you want to dwell on. You share them with your small group. You take them home with you. You highlight them. You think about them later. This is discipleship, church. And discipleship, it takes effort. It takes perseverance. It takes discipline. And it's no surprise that the words discipline and discipleship are very similar, okay? There's reason for that. There is no discipleship without discipline. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. But it's the same with anything in life, isn't it? Anything in life you want to grow in and improve in, it just takes discipline. So I want to encourage you. There's five weeks to go, and after that you've read the entire New Testament. It takes discipline, and in return is this wonderful gift of discipleship, of God working in us more and more. We get to know him better. One thing that came up this week, a few people said to me, there's some things that Paul says to the church that are kind of a little hard to understand. You know, what do we do with that? Do we just ignore them or do we take them on board? Well, the answer to those difficult bits is don't skip over them. But we have to be good students of the Bible and know how we interpret the Bible well. One of the big questions you have to ask yourself is what is happening in the culture, in the context, for the people who, the, uh, who are the original audience? You have to ask why is Paul addressing certain things in certain ways? You know, we have to ask us this question, is what Paul is saying, or others, who are other authors, are they talking about something that's very Christian or something that's very cultural? And we have to explore those sorts of things. So before I get into today's reading, I just want to quickly share with you, there's a very helpful method of interpreting or reading the Bible that those who go through Bible college uh, will be familiar with, and but quite frankly, we should all be familiar with um, it comes out of one of my textbooks. I want to share it with you really quickly. So there's going to be a diagram on the, on the screen behind me here called uh, The Basics of the Journey. This uh, particular uh, way of reading the Bible or interpreting the Bible, it, you know, it's shared across all mainstream evangelical denominations. And it helps us to better interpret the Bible and apply it to us. So I just want to give you the short version of this particular method of how you would interpret the Bible. It's called The Journey of Grasping God's Word. And here's how it works. Step one, on, my, uh, on your left over there, all the way over to the left there, um, is uh, grasp the text in their own town. So this is uh, where we need to consider what the text means to the original readers. You know, what was their culture like? What was actually happening in history in that time? What's the, the, the literary style of this particular part of the Bible that we might be, be reading? You know, the genre. Uh, what is the background of the specific group of people 
that, uh, that the author was writing to, or, or perhaps even the church. And when you ask those questions and you research those questions, you put yourself in their shoes, you read it from their context instead, instead of our own. That's step one. Step two is you've got to measure the width of the river that you're crossing. You know, what is the difference between the biblical audience and us today? And sometimes it's wide and sometimes it's narrow. For example, the Israelites lived and moved around the desert for 40 years. You know, it was very different to what it's like for us now. You think about that. No emergency services, no sanitation, hospitals. Um, the schools would have been very different, if, if at all. No tra- well, different transportation. You know, the relationships with the neighbouring countries were different. All of those things, very different to our context. So when you read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, but the whole Bible, the river can be wide. And you have to measure that width so that we are on that journey of understanding. Step three is you've got to cross the principalizing bridge. Maybe not a real word, but it's in my textbook, so we're, we're using it today. You know, what is the theological principle of the text? So even though the river might be wide, there is always a truth principle that is available for all people, for all of us. So the point is not to create the meaning yourself, but to discover the meaning intended by the author. And it should be a principle that crosses across cultures. The principles should be reflected in the text. It should be timeless. It shouldn't be bound to a particular culture. It should be in harmony with the rest of Scripture, and it should be relevant to the biblical and contemporary audience. Right? Step four is you've got to consult the biblical map. How does the theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Because if your principle doesn't align with the rest of Scripture, you've probably got it wrong. It's probably something that you've misinterpreted. And this is very important. Scripture always interprets Scripture, and it should be supported in other areas. There should never be a conflict. Step five is you've got to grasp the text then in your own town, and this is the best bit. This is the bit where you apply the biblical principle to your own life, and this is why we read the Bible. It's very important that we're actually um, applying it to us. Otherwise, why are we reading it? You know, The Bible should change us. So as good as knowledge is, application is essential. Now, if you're interested in going a bit deeper into understanding the interpretive journey, this particular chapter in my textbook, I've made 20 copies of them. You'll find them on the information desk. It's probably good to buy the, the entire textbook just so we're not breaking too many laws. But I encourage you to, uh, if you want to read that section, I encourage you to do it because this, this is a good question I had this week. What do we do about this bit here? that Paul was talking about. Why aren't, why aren't the women wearing hats and hair coverings in church anymore? You know, we're just ignoring that. Well, I hope I've just helped explain to you why or how we would go about trying to explore that further. Okay, we're moving on to today's reading. Today I want to talk about diversity in the body. And, and if you've been reading this week, you'll know why I'm doing that. As I was reading these letters from Paul, this is the thing that stood out to me. And it's something that I think we have to seriously uh, think about, you know, be intentional about and, and not just expect it to happen by chance. Because more and more, the world is becoming very polarised and the age of the internet and constant media, it seems to be making it, it, it more possible and appealing to only surround ourselves with people who are like us, you know, who agree with us or maybe they even just look like us. And our culture seems to tolerate diversity of opinion and other things less and less. 
you know, for all its talk about, diverse, about tolerance, it seems like it's becoming less and less. You know, there's a lot of people that seem to be angry all the time, have you noticed? Because they don't agree with them or because they're different to them. There is an inner desire that's being fed in our culture that says, if you don't agree with me, you're against me. Everyone has to be right all the time. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's sinful, isn't it? It's just inward selfishness. It has no place in the church. It, it flows against God, Jesus' way of, of love and grace. It doesn't reflect the church of Jesus. But Paul says the church should be diverse in so many ways. In fact, he says there's some kind of power in this diversity that we have because we actually are called to unity within our diversity. A diverse church that is united as one under Jesus is a sign and wonder to the world. You know, the church should be the one organisation in the world where diverse people come together and are united as one. The Bible calls us to be one. We should be able to show it. This is how it's done. All the different parts of the body and all the different people here, the, the diversity, should be a sign and wonder to the world. Paul has a lot to say about this, this unity through many areas of diversity in, in this reading. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. If you're using your Immersed Bible, it's on page 141. Or it'll be on the screen, of course, as always. So here's point one. We are united in a diversity of race, ethnicity, and culture. Verse 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. You know, some of us, so obviously, again, thinking about the audience he's writing to, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. All of us here share the same spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, all of us here share the same spirit. So like I said, you go back to the interpretive journey, we consider the original audience, you know, Jews and Gentiles didn't mix too well. And often, you know, particularly for the Jews, they would think of the, the Gentiles as being people they don't want to associate with. So for the church to include Jew and non-Jew together as equals, worshipping together, fellowshipping together, praying together, you know, serving together, breaking bread together, having meals together, equals. No Jew, no Gentile. That was a big deal in that culture. Maybe we think it's not such a big deal today. It was a big deal then. The church should be diverse across many demographics, but, you know, sometimes it's not. So let's be honest about ourselves for a second. We have some good diversity in, in some areas. I think that we do great in the age diversity, don't you? From little babies up to the other end, you know? <laughs> All equal, though, and diverse. We have uh, some women in ministry. Admittedly, though, it's mostly men at this stage in this church. Although I'm pleased to see some uh, young ladies now entering into ministry training, but it's something that we should be mindful of. 
when it comes to ethnic diversity, there's no doubt we're largely white and Anglo, and I'm not saying that we've done anything wrong or that we should feel any shame about that, but for whatever reason, this part of Brisbane hasn't changed as quickly as the rest of our city. Have you noticed that? When you go to Sunnybank, it's different, isn't it? Now, I've checked the census data, and Hills Church comes very close to reflecting the ethnic diversity in our community, but there's no doubt our community around us is changing more and more, and therefore, so should we. And what I mean by that is that the church should always reflect the diversity of the community it's in. Otherwise, it's not representing the community. It's not being the church that Paul's talking about. So it wouldn't be biblical if that happened. Now, within this church, we have people, and I might get some things wrong here, but we have people originally from Samoa, Fiji, Malaysia, China, uh, Zimbabwe, Ghana, South Africa, Russia, America, Brazil, Vietnam, uh, I think Croatia, I might have that one wrong, Japan, and Canada, New Zealand. Have I missed any? Scotland and France. Originally, like now, you've come from there. Because there is first and second generation Australians whose parents and grandparents immigrated to Australia. And within this body, there's at least that I know of three indigenous Australians, and maybe more that I'm not yet aware of. But the point I'm trying to make is that diversity is great, and it's the norm of the church. And if it's not, then we have to ask ourselves why. You know. Now, recently, I had someone tell me They've made their home here at Hills, but it was a little bit, at first, uh, it, was, it was tough for the first few weeks for them because when they walked in, you know, you, you notice that no one kind of looks like you. And, and it got me thinking a little bit when this person said that. Now, I asked the question, so no one was complaining, by the way, because they've made their home here and they love it here. But I just thought, well, that would be, that would make sense uh, for, for someone who was from a, a different ethnic background or a minority, to walk in, it might be a little bit difficult at first because people don't look like you. And it reminded me of the time when I was... Um, so I've been in, in Thailand, and, um, you know, you, you do feel different, and yet connected, connected by the same love for God and the Holy Spirit. It's like the time we were in, in Brooklyn with a bunch of young adults. We were the only white people sitting in this church deep in Brooklyn. You know, it was all... African-American there. We were the only white people. And you notice it. You feel it. And so it made me think about others that might come into our church that might notice it and feel it. These people loved us so much. Like, it was kind of awkward because they constantly wanted to sing to us and hug us and do all sorts of things and call us up the front, if we remember those who were there. And um, do you want to come and reenact that for us now? You guys, no, you don't. Okay. (laughs) I'm only mentioning this because I want to challenge us to be conscious of the natural inclination to always gravitate to people who look and sound like us. You know, it happens. I've seen it in church conferences and stuff like that. We kind of segregate a little bit when we go to have lunch and things like that. Now, that might be just a normal, natural thing to do, but I think that we should be a little bit more deliberate. There is a blessing in opening our friendship circles to different cultures and ethnicities. I'm not saying anyone's doing anything wrong. I'm just saying awareness is good, isn't it? And we should be thinking about that. Number two, we are united in a diversity of personality and experience. So verse 14 says, The body has many different parts, not just one. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body was an eye, how would you hear? 
Well, if the whole body was not here, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can, uh, can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And it's a very familiar passage, and we know what Paul's trying to say, and yet there's a context of spiritual gifts, which we'll get to in a minute. But if this church was made up to of 250 people with the same personality, education, and life experience as Nathan Bell, it just wouldn't function. It wouldn't. I mean, how boring would it be for starters? Each person brings something special to the church body. Each person. Everybody. Church. I'm speaking to all of you. God has brought a wide variety of different personalities, different types of people, different experience, different education into this body. We know that every personality has strengths and weaknesses. The temptation sometimes is to only see the weaknesses in others. You know, they're different from me. But then we miss out on the strengths that everybody brings to the church body. We can't all be the same. Praise God. Even though maybe you think that it would be good if it was like that. Number three, we are united in a diversity of social and economic status. In fact, some parts of the body that seem... Oh, sorry, I'm at verse 22. Some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honourable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honourable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honour and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. You know, if one part suffers, all parts should suffer with it. And if one part is honoured, then all parts are glad. It's a great picture of the church. But even though we don't think we do it, we fall into maybe a subconscious trap of elevating people ahead of others based maybe on social or economic status. And it's something that we've got to be careful of because the world does that. But the church shouldn't. It can be so easy to do. We are one body. You know, someone who earns a million dollars a year, I don't think there's anyone here, <laughs> but if there is, they don't have a greater say or place in the church than someone who's earning nothing. But our culture tempts us to think that person might be more important. Paul's saying in the church, no. He says, in fact, take even greater care and honour people who are maybe the most vulnerable and the weakest. And in fact, those people are necessary for us. We need all people of all standing to be the true church. Otherwise, again, it's not the church, it's just the world. Number four is we are united in a diversity of gifts. And there's a lot of context around chapter, throughout chapter 12 around this one. And you can read more about it yourself if you haven't already. We're on page 142 now. Verse 29. Oh, and by the way, a little bit confusing. I'm kind of jumping down to 29 and I'm going back, back to 27 for point number five. So if you're a little bit lost in the reading, that's what I'm doing there. You shouldn't do that, by the way, but it, it'll make sense in a minute. So verse 29, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? 
do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. Interesting, isn't it? The ones that Paul says to earnestly desire is the helpful gifts. As I said, much of the early parts of chapter 12 focuses on the range of different spiritual gifts that God gives. But the main point here is that God distributes spiritual gifts amongst the body in order for the body to be healthy, to function well, and to accomplish the mission that he has given us to do. The wide variety of gifts, there's only a few mentioned here, are poured out by the Holy Spirit and to each and every one of you, not just me, important thing to know. It's not just me. I might be given certain gifts that enable me to be a pastor, but the Word says you received the Holy Spirit when you came to Jesus, and He gives a wide variety of gifts across the church body. In fact, I suspect the way it should work is that in most churches, every gift should be found somewhere across the board, sometimes multiple times. And one of the jobs of the elders and the pastors is to identify who has what gift and let's put them to use. But you do have a job. All of you have a job to put your gifts to use. And there seems to be a warning in the, in the Bible that if you don't, maybe it'll be taken away and given to someone else. That's the way I interpret it anyway. Others disagree with me. In other words, don't be given a gift from God and then do nothing with it. Invest it in the kingdom. Number five is we are united in a diversity of callings or um, you know, roles. Uh, I think calling's a better word, actually. So we go back to verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts, some of the parts God has appointed for the church. So there's apostles and prophets and teachers and those who do miracles and have the gift of healing, and, and then there's those who help others, very important role. Those who have the gift of leadership and those who speak in unknown languages, which was very common, particularly in that time because of the diversity that was in Jerusalem and the surrounds at the time. Well, in Corinth, actually, this particular church. You would have read at the beginning of each of his letters, Paul nearly always says, I am Paul called to be an apostle of Christ. There was a calling on his life. And when you read it in Luke, you would have read the times when Jesus called the disciples out of their vocation. They were fishermen, some of them. One was a tax collector. There was varying things. He called them out to minister to others as a vocation, as, in other words, as what they did. There was a calling on them. Every single one of us has a calling in life. Some will be apostles and teachers. Some will lead. Some will serve. All will minister to others, by the way. We are all called to minister in different ways. That's not just for the ministers. You're all ministers. The Bible's pretty clear about that. For many of you, though, God is calling you to the place where you already are. To be a disciple or a missionary in your workplace or your school is your calling. In fact, I would suspect that's probably for most of us here. You know, Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Each of you should remain as you were when God called you. 
And then he goes on to say, are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. Remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved to the world. Verse 24, each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. There was another section in there that talked about, well, what happens if I'm married and then I become a disciple of Christ? He says, well, remain where you were. So what I'm trying to say is I think there's a strong, uh, there's a good hint in this, hint, message, whatever it is, that God's saying where you are is actually where he wants you to be. That's often the case. When you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't automatically mean you change who you're with or what you're doing. But it does change who we are. We all have a calling. It's to love God with all your being. It's to love others as you would love yourself. You know, that's the essence. It's to make disciples of Christ. That's the mission that God gave every single one of his followers. It's to make disciples so you can go into the world. That's what God is calling you to do in the place you already are. But for some of you here today, God is calling you out of where you are, like Paul was. You don't want to do it like Paul was, though. I mean, that, I mean you do maybe, but you, you'll be blind for a while and it's messy. But maybe like Peter and John... You know, like Matthew, Barnabas, Silas, Phoebe, Priscilla. All these people had callings. I'm so glad to see some of our young people are exploring that calling. But what about some of you here today? Maybe some of you not so young. You know, God called me out of my long-term job when I was 37. There's a cost. But if Jesus is your Lord and he says, go, you go and you trust God also calls people out from their church to go into the world. For example, this great church in Antioch. This is what happened in Acts 13. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. A pretty good church, by the way, with those guys as your leaders, right? Saul meaning Paul. One day as these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Don't let that turn you off coming to the prayer meeting, church. <laughs> Okay. Now, in a similar way, we're doing the same thing today.